We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy writes with Brian Scott. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast powered by Twisted Tea. It is our Sunday SEC football conversation, our final one with Weldon Rodenberg. We talked a little bit about the Egg Bowl. Chase and I covered that on the Friday show, but then took a look around the SEC at the weekend's results, talked a lot about coaching searches, and then, of course, what the 10-win season means for Ole Miss, potential bowl game opponents, and more. So, think you'll enjoy the conversation. Buckle up. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a quick break to remind you. If this podcast is brought to you by Seaspire, it's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves with the best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and Southern Alabama regions. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new 2 gigabit and 8 gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself a hassle by not waiting for your internet to connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online today to cspire.com slash home and use the promo code RIPPY at checkout for one month of free service. That's right. Just for listening to this show, sign up for Seaspire Home Internet today and use RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. You get the first month free. How awesome is that? Can't be waiting for the internet to drop. I've got Seaspire Home Internet. It is the best. You should do it too. Check them out. Seaspire, customer inspired. This podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. As you're listening to this, Skybox Sports Picks College Basketball Package has gone live on the site. This is their bread and butter. They crush it every single year on college hoops. And if you need any proof of that, they gave away their picks for free on the internet last week, Twitter, wherever else you can catch them on social media, and ended up plus 34 and a half units on the week. Yes, you read that correctly or heard that correctly. Plus 34 and a half units on the week. Trust me, if you're into college basketball, you don't want to miss this chance to profit. They mop up in college hoops every single year. For a limited time, you can use the promo code NCAAB23 for 50% off your college basketball season long. 
Picks Package. Check them out today. Go online, find your own picks package to fit your price range. Maybe you're using the bowl game package as we got college football conference championships, bowl season coming up. Make a little extra Christmas money there. Use the promo code RIPPY for 20% off. They're the best sports handicapping service in the world. Check them out today. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Here's Weldon. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. After a week of Thanksgivings and dog registries and all kinds of stuff, we're apparently both about to become pet owners. Just a big week all around. We're both about to become parents, <laughs> yes, yeah. as we just learned talking about it two minutes ago. I uh, wasn't able to go on Friday because my wife and I drove to Franklinton, Louisiana, for those who know where that is. Uh, to go pick out a uh, girl golden retriever. We had to pick between two, which was not fun because uh, I wanted one. She kind of wanted the other one. And of course she won out in that one um, and then had a debutante ball Friday night. So there was not a lot of room in between for a two hour podcast to discuss whatever that was in the egg bowl on Thursday. But honestly, it's probably best that we're here right now because quite a lot has happened between Thursday night and uh, and now in terms of Ole Miss and everything else. <laughs> yeah, I'm picking up a golden doodle on Friday from or Friday or Saturday from Birmingham. I didn't really have much uh, much say in the process other than just agreeing to get the dog. Um, I think yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we picked, apparently it was picked out from a photo, like the breeder sends like three and it's like, pick which one I'm like, these look exactly the same, but you're now going off like descriptions of the dog as if they have personalities at two weeks old, but we picked right. out one. I got a text while I was at work to congrats your dad. I was like, can we maybe never send that again while I'm in the office? But uh, we do have a <laughs> – I didn't see it was company with a picture of a dog. So for about 10 seconds, I was like, what? Excuse me, what's going on? Um, <laughs> so we were picking him up on Friday or Saturday. So that will be a nice addition to the uh, Rippy household, I suppose. Um, where do we start? A lot has unfolded. I guess we'll hit the old Miss stuff. So Chase and I kind of covered the immediate post-game stuff on Friday as you were picking out your uh, – your new son or daughter. Um, so <laughs> we got the immediate part covered. Just big picture, I guess. Oh, I will hit the game a little bit. That was not pretty. It was enough to get the job done. I think our suspicions after the ULM podcast, which are hardly any sort of you know earth-shattering revelations, like, yeah, this team's got some problems up front. They're real banged up. If they had to play a like a opponent worth its salt the last two games, it might not go well. But credit to them, they made it through the teeth of the 10-game schedule and didn't really have to, just the way it worked out. And they did enough to win the football game as ugly as it looked for two and a half quarters. They definitely had issues early on getting any sort of momentum going in this game. Um, they couldn't run the ball. Jackson, I know he can say he's healthy all he wants, but he looks banged up in every which way, shape, or form. Um, but defensively, they, they showed up, and that was the important part. And I think kind of as that game went on, and Lane even kind of hinted at this after – they kind of just went with the offensive game plan of we are not turning this ball over. We do not think you have a chance in hell uh, at beating us at our game. We, we do not think you're going to score more than 10 points on us. So we're just going to keep running the ball, keep running the ball, you know, pop patch here or there. Of course, that touchdown to pre-scorn. And we're just going to kind of take all of the life out of you in this game. And we're just going to be ugly. It's not going to look fun. It's not going to look great, but we're going to win this game and we're just going to do it. Uh, bringing our running game and defense. And it was really as simple as that. Uh, that is an excuse for what happened in that first half, which was as ugly as I've seen an Ole Miss game like since Lane has been here. Um, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun to watch, but it didn't really matter. And I think he kind of told you that after the game. They knew 
that they needed or what they needed to do to win this game. They just kind of went out there and methodically did it for four quarters, uh, despite, you know, how it could have looked or versus what it did look. And then you have to give a little bit of credit, Mississippi State, for showing up emotionally and playing, you know, pretty hard on defense to make it things a little more difficult for Ole Miss. Yeah, you sent me a text at some point during the game that said this looks like the, the game plan they use when they don't respect the opponent. And I thought that was interesting from a couple of different angles because True. it brought to mind Vanderbilt 2021 when they're just trying to get to the Egg Bowl. I guess ULM, whatever that was last week, and one or two maybe rare others where Kiffin and the Ole Miss offense have been very uh, slow to start and are clearly just trying to get through the game. And I, I don't think it was – I know it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Like, it's not quite literally they don't respect Mississippi State, but I do think there's some truth in the fact that it looked like because of the state of the Ole Miss team and the Ole Miss offense, particularly up front, they knew that if you didn't make any dumb mistakes and allow State to score a touchdown on a short field and let the game get – weird for the lack of a better and more specific phrase that you were going to win the game. I think it was evident in some of the game management decision-making Kiffin was not nearly as aggressive on fourth downs during the game. You saw some, uh, you saw a couple punts when in the past he maybe goes tempo and tries to get the first down or kind of the classic Kiffin's frustrated at how the drive ended. Let's just try to get this fourth down. They knew by pinning them back, you know, deep in their own territory that Mississippi state, the likelihood of them driving down the field and scoring multiple touchdowns to win this game was just not likely. And of course that's exactly what ended up being the case outside of that one drive where state scores to go up seven to three. That was exactly what it was. And so it felt like a game plan out of necessity just to chalk up this 10th win, get the hell out of Starkville and then see where you, where the chips fall as far as the bowl game. This looked like a game plan they've used and this is, of course, just for my novice eye of what I'm looking at. I, I don't know shit. I'm just saying this is just what it looks like. Um, against Arkansas this year, against Auburn on the road uh, this year, and against Mississippi State, I think three games against three teams where they were not really concerned defensively that they were going to be in a bad matchup. So offensively, they went out there and they really force-fed the run game. They didn't use a lot of trickeration. They used a lot of ball control a lot of, you know, field position battles where they thought they had an advantage on the defensive side, which is something, you know, quite frankly, they don't have as much as you'd like for them to have. Uh, and that's growing to work in progress. But it's really just more of a game control phase where Ole Miss decides we are not scared of you on the other side of the ball. So we're going to handle our business on offense. You know, we're beat up. We're exhausted. We play three players on the outside and two running backs and one got hurt in this game. So we're just going to ride our best player until, you know, he drops. <laughs> and defensively, we're going to make plenty of plays against a quarterback who's just was not healthy and the running back that was not healthy in Mississippi State's offense, which just in a hole is not healthy. And we're going to just win. And it's not going to look pretty. It's going to be fine, though. And we're just going to get out of here. And we've seen it multiple times. And you can kind of feel like in the second quarter of some of these games when you know this is what they're going to just do for the rest of the game. And it might not feel fun, uh, but it's a recipe that they've used quite a few times, really, in the last three years that has been incredibly beneficial for them. And when they know they have those advantages, they just use them. They, they don't make things more complicated. They have to be in a football game. And we talk about Ole Miss being a program whose brand is it just wins a lot of football games. And part of that is Kevin and the staff's ability to win games in different ways. And while this one wasn't exactly a work of art, they got it done. And it was clearly a clear construction effort to win the game in that fashion. Of course, would they have liked to run for 400 yards and win the game 35 to 7? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. They, of they course, felt like yeah. they knew what they were in for. And I thought another piece of it that Chase and I talked about a little bit on Friday was – 
the discipline and poise that Ole Miss showed state seemed to know that the only way that they were going to have a chance in this game was one, the ugly game where it's low scoring and you try to get it to the fourth quarter to have a shot, which to their credit, they did, but also make it chippy, get Ole Miss out of its element. And Ole Miss didn't really bite on it. I thought one of the more poignant moments regarding that point was State was chirping all game. Ole Miss, of course, was chirping back some. State had some, you know, iffy hits toward the sideline that you could be bordered on on late. Dart gets hit and seemingly kind of goes down for a minute. I was surprised at that point he came back in the game. I feel like I've said that six times this year. But Ole Miss didn't really bite on it to the point of getting personal fouls in the game, getting out of whack, and them getting out either in their own head or just out of themselves as far as what they were there to accomplish. And, again, I thought the most poignant example of that was Dart gets the first down to steal the ball game where they go to take needs, and then he starts letting them have it. He didn't oh, yeah. really do it the whole game at all, but as soon as that game was over and they were going to just take knees, that was when he decided to you know, give him give an earful for a second. And I thought that showed some good leadership. Dart was pulling guys away from you know post-play scrums throughout the entire game. And for a team that we've talked about that's mature, mature has a lot of good character guys and a lot of older guys on this team, I thought that was the latest example of that on Thursday night. They, they fell into really no traps in that game on Thursday. And I don't even really think like Mississippi State was like super dirty or super obnoxious in their ways. But, you know, they were being chirpy, which chippy. is what you'd expect. Chippy, chirpy in a, in a big rivalry game. So that's what you would expect. Um, they had a few questionable hits on Dart for sure. But it wasn't anything, you know, super dramatic compared to what we've seen in some Egg Bowls. But, no, almost gets a lot of credit for not – for not at all getting into any of it with them. And especially as we've seen this year, when Mississippi State goes up 7-3, Ole Miss responds immediately with a touchdown drive to make it 10-7 to take away any and all momentum that State had in that football game. And that's just what they've done every single time this year, whether it's Arkansas or LSU or Tulane or A&M, and we can go through all of them. Whenever they go down, they just don't feel the pressure that maybe a fan might be feeling watching the game. Um, and it's just a real credit to this offense, to Kiffin, to the coaching staff of just having these guys mentally tough in these positions, especially in a road game on the road with everything to lose. They just didn't really seem to phase them. And they just went out there and kind of took care of business in an ugly way, which is um, something they've done more than I think most people would realize under Kiffin uh, with this team. They've won a lot of these kind of uglier games, kind of like thinking about the Kentucky last year. Um, and it's just it's awesome that you can win ways and uh, win football games in different ways instead of just being so offensive oriented because the defense for Ole Miss was fantastic uh, on Thursday night. Yeah, they were. And State played into the hype of it. Again, that was really the only way I think that Greg Knox could keep them together. They did the four wheeler thing. Uh, I thought that that whole interview for that was confusing. I kind of sort of got, I guess, what he was trying to get at. But that was weird. They did have a pretty good crowd. They didn't roll over. They invested in the game. And, you know, Ole Miss at the end of the day did enough to come out and go 10-2. and two. So we talked about this leading into the, the game and what it could potentially end up meaning for Ole Miss program-wise. But they did cap off their second 10-win regular season in the last two years, something that really has not happened a lot um, throughout the course of Ole Miss's history. Just looking back at it now, I, it seems like Ole Miss has, still has a halfway decent shot to make a New Year's Six game what do you make of this second 10-2 and two season, what it means as you enter this new era of college football and the significance of it? It feels different than the first 10-2 and two season. Um, 
I can't really put my finger on it. Uh, I think that they had two better losses for whatever that's worth this year. Um, that Auburn game in 21 was super weird with Corral going down and having like no receivers in a hostile environment against a, a relatively decent Auburn team. I wouldn't call them a good Auburn team. Um, I think, you know, beating LSU this year at home, that being a, you know, at least an elite offensive team, um, and now a team that's ranked the top 15 compared to beating that horrible 2021 LSU team, I think has a big difference. Um, and I think it's just the kind of the way that they've won these games, just doing it in multiple ways, having a quarterback that's improved so dramatically from one year to the next, having a defense kind of similar to the 21 team where they weren't elite by any means, but they got a lot of sacks and they took the ball away a ton they're just well coached. They're easy to cheer for. And I, I know that, you know, we'll talk about the bowl situation. It might not feel the same as that 10 and two team with where they end up, but this one feels a little more uh, earned, I guess you could say uh, compared to that one. I don't, I don't even know if that's really the right word for it, but I think just the momentum of having that down year last year, having all of that, you know, quote unquote controversy of last year and then coming back, with the schedule as difficult as this one was and coming out with 10 wins uh, is wildly impressive, especially considering the way that they've continued to build this roster or many had questions about it and maybe still do have questions about it, uh, but you can't deny the results. And they're incredibly, incredibly impressive for Ole Miss in their history. Chase described this as the most productive Ole Miss team in the modern era, a had the basically the opinion that, that no team had maximized its potential more than Ole Miss, and maybe that's kind of what you were getting at with them earning it more, right? Their two losses were to the two best programs in college football currently, and they won every other game, and they were resilient in doing so. You brought up the point of them every time they were down in the second half. They were down in the second half to Texas A&M, Arkansas, LSU, Tulane, and Mississippi State, and each time they immediately answered with the score and won the football game. And so with – now seeming it looking like they might have some pieces, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, back next year. Of course, there's going to be plenty of guys leave. They're going to have to hit the portal hard again. They're going to have to close on this class and have a better high school class than they've had the last two years. But with some continuity next year, they finally look like a team as they enter this new era that's as good a position as anyone um, to have another seat at the expanded table. All these teams spent these years jockeying for position, and now they're kind of there. And I thought this team – Maybe its legacy long-term is the team that set the table for whatever this new era is. I think that's definitely fair. I don't have the uh, history, uh, the knowledge of the history of Ole Miss football like Chase does. Uh, mine only goes back to really beginning as a freshman in 14. And I can definitely say that just in terms of what they've accomplished, who they've beaten, how they've played, how they've looked, that this is the most successful regular season uh, I mean, in, including the schedule, of course, as well, that they've ever had. Um, it's just been really, really solid. They've beaten every team that they were supposed to beat, whether they're equal to or lesser than. And then, yeah, they look, they lost two incredibly difficult road games against the two teams going to play for an SEC championship next weekend. Uh, it's frustrating, but it's not, you know, unrealistic. It's unrealistic to think that this team was going to go 12 and 0. I mean, we were talking about seven and five, eight and four, weird case scenario. You can get to nine and three, but to do 10 and two with this schedule, uh, with this team, just in particular, the amount of turnover they had on offense and defense, you know, Charlie's only his second year in doing this thing, bringing Pete in in the way that he's kind of galvanized what he was able to with this, uh, with his defense. Just everything encompassing, it, it was really, really impressive. And you're absolutely right of how important the timing 
of a season like this is for Ole Miss with so many teams going in this, you know, conference going through coaching changes, the playoff coming, the NIL stuff, you know, that's been the talk of everything. And the talk of Ole Miss has just been, damn, this seems pretty good. What bowl are they going to go to? There, there has not been controversy. There has not been portal issues. There's not been issues on the team with players. And there have been. They've handled it quickly and swiftly. It's just been a really – uh, business-like and professional atmosphere and a professional result for them, which is really, really impressive considering all of the change they've had. Looking back at this season, one thing became clear. They were very fortunate from a health standpoint. I know we just spent the last however many minutes talking about how them not being healthy the last couple of games and having to just slog through it. But they didn't play a lot of guys, particularly as really on offense. Defense, they found some depth, and they found a lot of guys that played a lot of niche role as well. But on offense, they don't play a lot of guys. They basically played three receivers. They basically played six to seven linemen. They had two running backs, and they had Jackson Dart. Now, granted, they yeah. had one hell of an insurance policy behind Dart, and whatever Walker Howard you know, could have been or would have been had that been a need at some point this season. Fortunately, it wasn't Dart at almost – be defying logic and reasoning it sometimes was just always back out there and he made it through 12 games and as much as he wants to say he's healthy I I, I doubt that it, by any stretch but looking go, going forward with this team as they've now or this program as they've now this will be an interesting year I guess is my point to try to find a balance between high school recruiting and the portal because it's clear they need to add depth they need to add depth on the offensive line they need to add depth at running back and they need to add depth at receiver they tried this past year I don't think you could have necessarily foreseen the Zakari Franklin and Chris Marshall thing happening at once but how do you kind of view this team's offseason needs if they want to get back to the position they're currently in next year which in that case will probably mean a playoff spot what do you think they need to do They've got to find depth at the important positions in offense, which is offensive line and wide receiver. Uh, I think running back wise, they'll have, you know, cue back barring, you know, something crazy. Um, I think Jim Griffin is a serviceable piece. Uh, I think we'll see a little bit more of Riscano's redshirted this year. Uh, they're going to try as hard as they can to sign the Lacey kid from Lancaster, um, who's just a really, really good player. Like that would be a massive get. Um, but offensive line and receiver, what they need. They, they've they played and trusted no receivers. So I, I have no faith that any of these young guys that have not played yet um, are going to play anytime soon. So portaling one or two receivers, guys that they believe can really help, whether that should just be on the field they can trust, or elite guys like an Evan Stewart or somebody like that. Offensive line is really, really difficult to find elite players in the portal. Got to pay. Uh, yeah, you got to pay for them, and honestly, the ones that are capable of playing at this level, there's few and far between. Uh, so you really have to work to develop some of the guys you've signed. You've got to work to finish out this high school class, both in receiver and offensive line, and hopefully one of these guys that they've had kind of in the process can develop the way that they'd like to. Um, but I really do think you're going to need to bring in maybe a tackle probably more on the interior side because you'll have Pettis back, but that's injuries. Man, you never know what happens with a big kid like that. Jade Williams, they didn't trust him this year. Maybe that was just because they like Kern more, which is fine, but you'll have him back. But it's the interior where you've really struggled. And though you can survive without an elite interior defensive line, just the way that they do their run schemes, you're, you're going to have to do be better there. Um, I think quarterback-wise, they need to sign one. 
Um, they've shown they can find depth in the portal. I, that's not an ideal situation for a lot of people. So the idea that they're just going to be able to go out and find another Spencer Sanders is probably unlikely. So you'll go into next season with Dart and Howard and Simmons. Could be worse, could be a little bit better. I, I just don't know how they feel about those two guys behind Dart. Uh, but the main point will be offensive line and wide receiver. And then, of course, depending on pre-scoring situation, you might need to go finding a tight end as well. Yeah, because they didn't really – I know you had Hudson Wolf for part of the year, and he was in and out with an injury. But Hard I mean, to trust at this point. Yes, and particularly as the offensive line uh, got banged up down the stretch, like pre-scoring didn't come off the field on Thursday night, I don't think. I think they played 76 offensive snaps, and he played all 76 of them, and that's because they needed them. But they didn't do a lot of two tight end stuff other than occasionally having pre-scoring and Wolf out there at the same time. And so they're in a position, though, where it wasn't like last year where it's like, holy cow, look at this laundry list of needs. How in the world are they going to fill them? They The needs are obvious. The needs are Fewer in some senses, and it's going to be fascinating to see how they fill those slots because this staff has a proven tracker. There's anyone in the portal. They're faring better, at least as it stands right now, in high school recruiting. How, Who and how can they develop guys on the offensive line? That part is going to be fascinating to me. But they're in a lot better spot health-wise, and I think this will be a very important offseason in the proof of concept of the portal theory and just where you're at after three years of this thing and mixing it in with high school recruiting. Right. They have recruited high school pretty well. They've got to close well. You know, they've got guys that are out there. There are targets for them that are really important players. And they've got guys they need to hold on to that they've had committed for a while as well. And, I mean, we don't have to go through the whole class, but we, we could maybe one day, maybe not now. Um, but, look, they're going to have to add more on defense as well. I, I think they're going to be portal heavy on defense. I think it's shown to really work for them when the guys hit that this is a really good way to kind of bridge the gap between developing guys like Perkins and what will be Franklin and hopefully will Eccles next year with guys who've played a lot of football. They haven't really gone out and gotten any elite portal guys uh, defensively, but they've just gotten guys that can trust that have played a shit ton of snaps, know what they need to do. Uh, I'm sure they would love to upgrade the speed in the back end. I think they'll need to. Uh, they're definitely going to have to find some linebackers and corners because uh, I don't know what Z Walton's deal. I think he might be done. Uh, Prince, I think, is definitely gone. So you might be losing two there. And then linebacker-wise, you're going to have to work to develop Perkins to be a typical off-ball linebacker. He's He's been playing the, the Harold Perkins role this year, uh, but that's going to be a transition. And it's not an easy one, as you've seen with LSU's Perkins. It, it doesn't always work out how you think it does. And I'm confident that they are, have the ability and the coaching staff and that Suntarian has the talent to move in that position. But if he doesn't, you're in a weird hole there. Um, so linebacker and corner, I think, are going to be massive spots on defense. Uh, and then you never know. It'll, then it'll start becoming like the NFL draft. It's just best player available, guys that come out of nowhere. I mean, they're going to be fighting the entire country for the portal. There's no more Ole Misses ahead of the game on this. Uh, everyone's got money, everyone's got needs, everyone's got a heightened um, level of expectation going into this 12-team playoff. So it's finishing out this really good high school class with some guys I know they're targeting and then portaling the correct players at the correct positions, which I think is so much more important than kind of star chasing some of these guys who've left, you know, pretty solid 
deals um, just to shop around. Uh, I think that has not worked out well for Ole Miss. Do you think they learned their lesson in that sense in getting the right guys? And I know, of course, the Chris Marshall, a couple other examples, but they found this past season a lot of guys who fit their role really well. Even guys were like, who is this exactly? Whether it's Dejon Anthony or uh, Zamari Walton or, you know, whatever example you want to point out. It seemed like this year they went for a little bit more of a balance that, of course, Chris Marshall, guys like that. You mentioned the star chasing. You often look back and say, well, why did they leave their current situation? With Marshall, it was similar to why he was no longer a part of the Ole Miss football team after a while. And it, it I won't call it turning a corner, but it seemed like from year one of the portal to year two of the portal to this past offseason, they sort of found that out a little bit more. Maybe they learned it on the fly this year after finding the right guys that ended up being awesome and maximizing their potential on the defensive side of the ball. Do you think they learned a lesson regarding that to some degree? Because Chase and I talked about this on Friday. It's like, yes, of course you want to go get the best talent available, but a lot of times it has to be the right guy, the right talent, and the right personality because that leads to the fourth quarter stuff, the cohesion, guys that buy in and like each other. Kiffin mentioned this after his – during his post-game press conference, he's like, look, this program's not for everybody. We put a lot of responsibility, a lot of stress on these guys, and it's not for everyone. And I thought it was kind of interesting. He said, you know, some of the guys, names that you know, are no longer here because of it. And I'm just – he seemed genuinely proud of the guys that finished off another 10-2 and two season. And as we've talked about a couple of times a year, he just genuinely seems to like this team. So back to the question, do you think they learned a little bit of a lesson there? It's a very delicate balance, and it's a very much an inexact science on what exactly, you know, quote unquote, a right guy is. You know, if someone like Evan Stewart's getting in the portal, I, you'd be hard pressed to really do a super big background check because of how yeah. talented that kid is. I think there will be some no doubters out there that, you know, just it doesn't really matter what the situation is. They're going to go for him. Um, but I do think that. I don't want learn lesson is probably I don't know if that's the necess, that's the right kind of mindset about it. Adapt I think may they be may a have, better word. Yeah, I think they may be just a little changing their scouting a little bit, uh, really doing a little bit more in depth of trying to get a lot of guys to campus and really being around them. Because I think what one thing Kiffin does do really well is when he gets in front of kids and there's kids that he likes and there's kids that have juice, and there's kids that, like, he knows, like, okay, this guy's a pro, he's here for the right reasons, has a really high hit rate on those kids. And if they are able to kind of mesh, you know, elevating the level of talent on the roster with also grouping in the right kind of guys, I think that will be, you know, the secret sauce. It's not secret, but the, the perfect mix of what they need to do in the portal. Because I think high school-wise, it's so crazy. I mean, you'll never really know. You can do all the scouting and all the film work and you have an idea of what you're getting in the kid, but they haven't really matured yet. They haven't gotten on campus yet. You never know how they react to stuff like that. In the portal, you have a better sample size of what a kid is like in a program. And I think they will do a little bit more background work to figure out that they're not wasting one, a scholarship and two, as importantly, any of their budget on guys that are not going to come in and be the right kind of player for them. So, look, it's it's an inexact science. It's not perfect. It's impossible to predict. But the portal does give you more data points than in high school. And I think they're going to start really focusing on some of the non-football data points of that in order to build a team uh, as well as they can. We'll get back to Weldon in just one second. But before we do, I want to take a real quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your 
Go to Game Day Beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've ever had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to Elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. This podcast is now brought to you by MC Speech Therapy. Has your child been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or another developmental disorder? MC Speech Therapy offers private speech therapy from the comfort of your own home. Other centers may leave you as the parent sitting in the waiting room. MC Speech Therapy enables parents to make every moment with their child therapeutic. Using a relationship-based framework, MC Speech Therapy can help your child engage, relate, and communicate. Mary Claire Boudreaux's doctorate-level expertise and passion in helping children with communication difficulties offers articulation and language therapy, parent training, and is licensed to do virtual therapy across the state of Mississippi. With MC Speech Therapy, you and your family will gain a better understanding of your child while cultivating stronger relationships. For service today, call 903-824-8575 or email her at maryclaire at mcspeechtherapy.net. That is M-A-R-Y-C-L-A-I-R-E at mcspeechtherapy.net. Okay, back to Weldon. As we put a bow on this season, and I know there's a bowl game, we'll get into all that and early signing period and all of those types of things. But at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year, we thought eight and four, seven and five. This team clearly blew the roof off of those expectations that we bestowed upon them. I didn't prep you for this at all, but I really just kind of thought of it in the moment. It might be useful to go through and give some grades. And we'll start with some of the new pieces of this team. We'll go Pete Golding. What kind of grade would you give Pete Golding after year one, what you thought they would be versus what they were? It's hard not to give him an A. I think so too. I'd go A. I may not give him an A plus, but I'll I'll definitely give him an A. Look, when they were matched up against teams where they were equal to or slightly better than, the defense performed exceptionally well. When they went up against teams that they were not as talented as or better or worse than, they were completely outmatched. Um, and that's not all on Golding. So, look, doing what you're supposed to do in the games you're supposed to do them in, you know, talent, you know, not equal or equal, it, that's enough for me to give him an A, and it's pretty uh, not explanatory. That's it, pretty obvious. Jackson Dart. I give him an A as well. I mean, the kid's tough as nails. He is clearly – I don't even know if he's, like, a different quarterback talent-wise from a year ago that he was, but he's definitely a different quarterback leadership – and confidence wise. And that is just an incredibly important part of that position that gets talked about ad nauseum, talking about, you know, things that are not talent trait based, but more leadership based. And they needed a guy like him. I, he set the tone with a lot of these transfers, kind of, you know, what they need to be and what this program's about. And I mean, you can't ask for more than what he was able to do in really important games like AM and LSU. I mean, those are the two games where you probably didn't have the, the talent. And he was kind of really the difference in the end is how he played in both those games. Charlie Weiss Jr. I am a pretty big believer in Charlie. I do not think that he's bad at his job. I think he has a difficult job. Um, one, he's young. He's new. He has to deal with the expectations of what you expect out of a kid in offense. 
Um, he, there was some good and some bad there. You know, I think LSU and A&M, I thought he called a great game. I thought he called a good game against Alabama. They just didn't execute great. Uh, I know people, you know, are shitting on all the, the sweeps and stuff, but there were plays to be made in that first half. You go rewatch it. Um, and I, I'm not putting any, all of that on him. I, I would give him a B. Um, it's not, not perfect. They don't have the offensive line to run the ball on people like they've been able to in the past, um, like Lane wants to do in the past. Like I'm sure Charlie would like to do. Um, but they still are really functionally a very good offense. So I'll go with B. It, it's hard to kind of gauge that one. Yeah, um, it I, is. I'm sure we'll probably feel much differently about that. I'd go B in the same range as well. Offense as a whole. I think I'll go B B plus. I mean, in the games where they B had plus. to bring it, they kind of brought it. And in the games where they had to score enough points and not do anything dumb, they did it. Now, was it stagnant against Alabama? Was it stagnant against Georgia? Yes, of course. But for the most part, it was still a pretty damn good year. Yeah, I'll go B plus. I think that their inability to consistently run the ball was definitely a down. I think what they were able to do playing basically three receivers is incredibly impressive. Of course, you have to factor in darts play in there. Uh, there was just a lot of inconsistencies uh, on the offense this year compared to what we've seen. That doesn't mean they were bad because they definitely had some great games, but I can't put them at an A with kind of some of the stinker halves that they had throughout the season. And look, is that Charlie's fault? Is that Talent's fault? Is that Dart? Is it, the, you know, it, it could be a myriad of things. It's not all on one person. Um, but I think they were bet, much better than last year. And I don't even think they were as talented as last year necessarily on offense, which says a lot about the coaching staff and Jackson. Offensive line. Uh, I would give them a C minus. I'll go C. Um, yeah, I, I they just never were really dictating any sort of tempo or dictating terms in really any game this season, with the exception of maybe LSU, which is not saying much. That defense sucks. Uh, I, I don't know how much it is on some of the players or the coaching. I mean, it's Garrison's first year, not on him, but just really just the development of the offensive line in general. It's kind of been a slight decline every year, which I think is pretty fair to say. Uh, I think they're going to need a lot of help going into next year. I, they've got the tackles. The interior is just a complete mystery. Um, but there were some bright spots, but way more negatives than positives there. I think so, too. There wasn't a single game this year where you thought they really just punished the other team and Ole Miss manhandled them at no. the line of scrimmage for four quarters, unless I'm really missing a game. There were there were pieces and parts in there. There were parts where it's like, this looks like the 2021 rushing offense, and they did it in flashes, but just too much inconsistency. And then the injuries, of course, at the end of the year hampered them as well. That's going to be the most fascinating position group, I think, to monitor this offseason. I'll wrap up with this. This one's not even a grade. Was there a position group that surprised you the most, whether it be good or bad? I mean, I would say receiver um, based on what we thought we were getting going into the season and what we got. If you had said, you know, you're not getting Franklin to play at all and Chris Marshall will never, you know, take a snap as an Ole Miss Rebel and you're going to run it back with Wade Watkins and Trey Harris and all three of them are going to go over 500 yards, I would be like, you know, that's pretty damn good, all things considered. Um, you don't want to have a situation like that. But for what they had and the lack of playing time for basically damn near anyone else, I, that is the position group I would give 
you know, a lot of props to. And a lot of it goes to Wade and Watkins as much as Harris, who was kind of, you know, he was dominant when he was healthy, but kind of in and out of that lineup. Those two were just so consistent through this year. And Dart, when Dart needed to play, those two guys made it. Um, so I, that would be the one position group, really on the entire, I would say the entire team that was, I don't want to say surprising, but just the circumstance-wise outperformed what I expected. I'll go secondary as a whole, and I know that's not necessarily a position group, but it was it, to me it's both the corners and the safeties. What Zamari Walton was opposite of DeAndre Prince was a very pleasant surprise. What they got out of guys like Dejon Anthony, Tasia Young, even in spots as well, Deshaun Gaddy. Um, I guess you could count Tennyson, even though he was basically kind of like a line of scrimmage linebacker type guy. But the sure. depth that they were able to piece together in the portal really made for a pretty affordable back end of the defense for most of the year. They were an opportunistic defense. They weren't perfect by any stretch. But when you think of the guys that made plays and got turnovers in crucial moments, a lot of times it was those guys in the secondary. And it was a lot of guys that you necessi didn't necessarily think would end up being key contributors. Hell, some of them I didn't even figure were on the radar going into the year. I thought that was a very pleasant surprise for this team as well. Definitely. Uh, similar to just the defense as a whole, when those guys played teams where they were not scared of their receivers, they were ex exceptional. They were fantastic. Yeah, they got their ass kicked by LSU and Georgia, in some cases A&M. But, you know, like we said, this is a talent problem that they're going to have to figure out. But – Considering all the guys they brought in on the back end, the way they completely reshaped that room, what they brought to the team this year was, I mean, invaluable. Uh, I think especially just the way they were able to take away the ball. That is just such an important part of this team. Their, their ability to create turnovers consistently all season. A lot of that coming from that back end, from different case scenarios, from corners, from safeties, you know, making plays in the backfield like Tennyson. I'm with you. They, they get a lot of credit for the complete 180 that they've made uh, in the back end of that defense. I don't know if I want to call this MVP or unsung hero, but if you're talking about the most valuable piece to this team, and we'll disqualify Jackson Dart for obvious reasons, playing the most important position on the field. To me, it's a pair of receivers, and I don't know if you want to go with Trey Harris because of just the dominant threat he became, or – who or uh, excuse me, or Dayton Wade because of what the offense still was when Harris wasn't out there or whatever became a Franklin when they got banged up. When I thought of like, okay, who are the two most important pieces or most invaluable pieces on this team that maybe wouldn't off the top of your head get some sh some shine? And I know those guys aren't too terribly far down on the list, but I thought both of those guys in similar ways were incredibly valuable for this team. And if you take either one of them off this team, I don't know what their record is, but it sure as hell is not 10 and 2. It's not good. They, those two are definitely the MVPs of this team. I I think even including Dart. I think you just the way this offense runs, the way they go tempo, just the style of play as a whole, having two guys as consistent as those two that were basically uninjured for the entire season, unless I'm completely forgetting something, that were just consistently making plays. They don't drop the ball. They always know where they need to be. Their ability to get others in the right place, I mean, it's just unbelievably impressive what they were able to do. And we've not knocked them. We've just said, look, you might not want those guys to be your 1As on a team. But honestly, going through this entire season, the way they've played, I can't give them enough credit. I, I would want those guys on my football team every single year. It's just unbelievable what they were able to do. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Kind of last thought on this wise, there's going to be a lot of talk over the next couple of weeks or week or so about the bowl game and Ole Miss's chance of getting into a New Year's Six. And I don't think, you know, Kentucky did Ole Miss a gigantic favor. I think at the end of the day, they probably find their way into a New Year's Six bowl game. But if they don't, I had this debate with Chase in a different form, but does it really matter? This team went 10 and 2. They won a ton of games. They're in a great position for this new era of college football with the expanded playoff. Will it be a Surface level disappointment from a fan base perspective if they end up in the Citrus Bowl playing Iowa or something like that versus a New Year's Six game. Sure. But at the end of the day, does it actually really matter? Because you could end up in a situation where you end up in the New Year's Six game where they're playing the G5 school that qualified. Like, would you rather play a Big Ten champion Iowa who you'll probably beat the brakes off of because you have a semblance of speed? Or would you rather play a Liberty or whoever gets in from that? Again, it's not guaranteed who they'll play and it be the group of five school if they get in the new year six. But I guess my question is, does it really actually matter or should you just enjoy it? it no, in reality, it does not actually matter which one you go to. Um, I mean, personally, yeah, I would love to go to the cotton ball. I don't care if you're playing SMU. It, it doesn't matter to me. One, I can drive there. So it's selfish in one sense. Um, it, it's a new year six. That doesn't mean nothing. But more than that, I just don't fucking want to play Iowa. That is such a lose-lose situation for Ole Miss. One, you're not in a New Year's Six, and that won't, you know, maybe the coaching staff and the players don't care about that. But more importantly, you're going to have to go play a team that's been a laughing stock of the entire country for all of the things they've done this year, the way they play offense and defense and the coaching situation. And it will become this whole cartoon circle amongst all of these like sicko committee people and, you know, that follow this sport. They're like, oh, my God, you know, it's Iowa and Ole Miss. And Ole Miss can do nothing to win in that situation. You know, of course, even if they win the game, they get 11 wins. That's great. But it, it won't be pretty. It's a weird matchup. I would want anything but playing Iowa. Uh, it just it won't be a serious football game. It'll be a total joke playing those guys. I would rather play Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl or I would play, play Liberty in the Citrus Bowl uh, or I'd rather LSU pass us up and go play Notre Dame in Tampa than, than I would play Iowa. And that, But 
back to your like actual question, does it really matter considering the success of this season where they end up? No. But I do think if you're going to end up somewhere, you might as well want to play a fun team and not some laughing stock. And I, I just – I don't want to play Iowa. Sorry. It, it's funny you mentioned they've been the butt of most jokes because really starting from signing the son to the contract – Brian, for instance, the contract where he has these thresholds. But it's it's a weird dynamic. They're going to play for their conference championship game. But it's like – I would love to get in the mind of a Hawkeye fan. Like they're not happy, but they won their division and they're going to play in the conference championship game. Ole Miss has been trying to get to Atlanta for a couple of decades. But this now Iowa, no one's happy and they're playing for another conference title. And yes, I understand why, but it's just a sort of a funny dynamic. They're the one-eyed king of the blind in the Big Ten West. Uh, that whole division sucks. They don't play any teams with an offensive pulse all, all season. And the one that they did play, Penn State, who, I mean, they have like a pulse and a half. They, Penn State kicked the shit out of them. And Ole Miss, look, they have so many offensive line injuries. It's going to be incredibly difficult to run on Iowa. It'll be a slugfest. It just won't be a fun game. And, and the bowl game, more than anything, you just kind of want a fun game to end the season. And I think that playing SMU in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, when they're in Dallas, would be so much more fun, despite maybe not the you know prowess of the opponent, than going to play on New Year's Day at, a, at 12 o'clock Eastern against a shit Iowa team. So I, I know it doesn't really matter, but it matters to me. And that, that's what counts for myself. No, I, <laughs> I don't want to want no interest in them. I okay. certainly get Absolutely. it. It's a, so you'd rather play the group of five team, even if it's like a Liberty and a Chad. Bowl. I would rather play the group of five team in a new year six bowl to say that you've now been to four of those against SMU beat them in the cotton bowl in Dallas, have a ton of fun. Um, then go to the Citrus Bowl and play a laughing stock, Twitter laughing stock in Iowa. Absolutely. Especially because you know what's going to happen is Michigan's going to go beat Iowa like 27 to nothing in the Big Ten championship game. So that game's going to have so little juice going into it. Whereas SMU Ole Miss, look, I mean, it's the cocaine bowl. It's in Dallas. I mean, I don't, they, they have the same colors. <laughs> I mean, I get to drive there, probably play a nice golf course on that – Friday or whatever that game. I mean, that just is, sounds so much better than going to the hood to play, you know, the the Midwest white boys. I'm not interested. Uh, oh, Andy Staples had a bold projection out today, and I think it made the board. And again, I don't know how any of that works, and I'm not going to try to get into the nuances of what how the matchup would be, but he threw Ole Miss quite the bone. He had Ole Miss Texas in the Cotton Bowl. Yeah, I looked at that. I don't even know if his bowl projections are actually possible. I think a lot of his bowl projections are based off of like just simply the rankings uh, because he had, do you have this pulled up? It was, I can find it really quickly. The only, my first thought without thinking, without going through the exercise of how he got there would just be that Oklahoma beats Texas in the big 12 championship game. But since they obviously are not going to the playoff, it would be OU in the sugar bowl. And then Texas still makes the new year six. That was my only like strand of logic of getting there. I had it earlier. Yeah, but like o- Oklahoma doesn't – Oklahoma State plays Texas. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's right. So basically in this format, he has Louisville, I guess, losing, being a two-loss team, but Florida State gets in, so they would get into the Orange Bowl no matter what. Um, he basically has Missouri and Penn State getting passed up by Ole Miss – 
uh, or Oklahoma and Ole Miss passing up Missouri and Penn State based off of no games being played. So this is uh, this to me is more of Seems like which, which games just... look the most fun. Um, which you know I respect that. I, I I'm totally fine with that. I just don't think that his bold projections, though as good as he is, like actually make that much sense. Yeah, I get that. Now that I'm looking at this, it does actually seem more and more impossible. So I guess we've kind of covered everything and there'll be some time to reflect back on this Ole Miss season as we get into the early signing day and all that. Let's get to the fun part, because by the time you and I were recording this podcast on a Sunday night, the coaching carousel, not all of it, but like the exciting bulk of it uh, has started to unfold. And I guess we'll start with the Texas A&M situation, because you texted me somewhat late last night. I was still watching the college football game and said, we'll have plenty to talk about tomorrow. I was simultaneously texting a buddy of mine who used to cover Kentucky full-time. I uh, was one of the few friends I actually had in media, but now kind of is in my situation. He's moved on to another job, but does it part-time as well. And he, I was like, is this actually happening? He goes, yep, it's, it's happening. Like he's told people this is a done deal. And then I wake up this morning to text you to try to figure out what time we're going to record. And all of a sudden, Mark Stoops is not going to be the head coach at Texas A&M anymore. And I spend the next 45 minutes trying to dissect what happened. Take me through your, not emotional, but just thought process of how this unfolded. Like how in the world, like how surprised were you at this whole thing? It, it just seemed out of nowhere. Um, and it seemed like it clearly had been done for a while because they – Kind of like, yeah, this thing's done. This is happening. This has been happening. You know, here we go. This, this is over. And I went to bed thinking that. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is not what I expected. And then, of course, wake up to find that that is actually not the case. And then, of course, this afternoon, it sounds like they're actually hiring Mike Elko to be the head coach. It, it just is clearly what happened. And I don't really know, of course, no one really knows exactly what happened. But what it seems like what happened was – that Ross wanted to hire Stoops and had it done and it wasn't actually done. And once it started to get out, the board was like, actually, we don't approve this. You know, the money people were like, no, we're actually, we're good here. And it fell apart. Stoops had to kind of save face to say that he wanted to stay at Kentucky and this is his home and his family. But in reality, they just didn't have it over the line. Um, like they thought that they did. And it was completely negated. And they went and hired the safest possible hire they could find of someone that would accept this job in Elko today. And it's just a clusterfuck. It was not exactly Tennessee Shiano level, but it was as close as you can get to that, um, you know, kind of public revolt over a hire that I don't even think was a bad one. It just kind of uninspired though I think Mark Stoops is a really good football coach and with a lot more resources, probably could have done a hell of a job. And the funniest thing is when you're hiring Elko, you're hiring a guy that with less experience as a head coach with less bona fides running a full-time program just because he was once the defensive coordinator A&M. And I guess the money people like him and trust him. So it's all kind of a wash to me. It, it just seemed really uninspired the entire process. It just, they, they went Hi, they were on Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley, and they ended up with the guy that everyone kind of thought they were going to hire all along. And at two different points on Saturday, before all of this not came to a fold, but was the pub like the public eye got more on it. There was a report from Bruce Feldman about like Ryan Day being a name to watch at AM. There was another report from someone who covers Texas AM about 
Dabo Sweeney emerging as a candidate. And yeah. then all of a sudden, less than 12 hours later, like you mentioned, you're talking about Mark Stoops and then ultimately Mike Elko. I think the way you described it was a very accurate one based on the information that we have. And I've listened to a couple of podcasts and read some stuff throughout the day. I think that's pretty much what happened. And it's fascinating to me on a number of different levels because I don't know what I'm more surprised by. I'll give you a couple candidates. One, we just talked about when this opening, when they fired Jimbo and this became an opening, is Ross Bjork making this hire? And we were both like, no, absolutely not. It was now, what does that actually mean versus like money people and the guy who's actually an employee university who's tasked with, you know, hiring these folks? That's always a very blurred line. But I was surprised that one, Ross settled on a fairly competent guy that's a very good football coach that I think would have done well at Ole Miss. Two, that they let it get to seemingly the five yard line before they kind of told the re board of regents or the money people or whoever it was, probably the board of regents mixed in with some boosters told like, Ross basically to go stand back in the corner. It was like, right, you've overstepped your depth. Like we'll take this from here. And they hired Mike Elko, which is very belittling from Ross's standpoint and not to, not to be one that feels bad for Ross Bjork, but that part of it was surprising to me as well. And then the fan revolt on Mike Stoops was the third thing I was surprised by. This whole thing was so baffling to me. I don't know what order to put them in, but what stands out to you? The fact that Ross was able to get a candidate that far, the least surprising part, I guess, is the fact that they got there and they're like, actually, no, and poo-pooed the whole thing. And then the fan revolt to Stoops. What sticks out most to you? What sticks out most to me is that A&M is, is a joke program. They have won nothing ever. And when they fired Jimbo Fisher, they thought that they were going to be able to do something like USC or LSU or Oregon did and, and take somebody's prize possession coach because they're going to pay him so much money and how good of a job it is. And in reality, I'm not saying nobody wanted the job, but their ego got in the way of them even attempting to try to make a, a hire that was at least in the public perception, better than Jimbo Fisher. They, they ended up with Duke's head coach, their former defensive coordinator, which is what any regular-ass program would do. They think they're not a regular-ass program. They've never won anything ever. They are a perennial 8-4 and four team. They're an 8-4 and four job. And the funniest thing is they were, like, getting so frustrated about Mark Stoops because all he does is go 8-4 and four Kentucky – that's, I mean, imagine what he would have done with your resources. He I was would have say, what you think you are as a program, then he wouldn't go eight and four there. It contradicts That's the exact itself. point. And the rumor is that he was going to take less money because he thought that he was well off enough and plenty good enough to take that program to the next level, compete with the programs they think they should be competing with. But in reality, they are who they are. That They have never shown anything more than eight to nine wins as a max as a program ever. They've had one 10 win season in the last like 12 seasons and Mark Stoops has had two. Like that's what they are. And they thought that this was an opportunity to like raise the profile and they absolutely have not done that. And I'm not even saying Mike Coco is a bad football coach because that's obviously not true. What he's going to do has been incredible, but he's not exactly the light the fire under your ass hire that scares everybody in the SEC, you know, quite the opposite, to be honest. So it'll be interesting. I'm not going to say he's going to fail by any means, but it's not exactly what I thought was going to happen with this. And I don't think it's what they thought was going to happen with this. Do fans have more power than ever? I, I This is a booster thing. I, I don't think the fans caused them not to hire Mark Stoops at all. I, I think Ross – Went through a search, found his guy, decided on it, didn't get it to the finish line before leaking it, 
And the board was like, no, we're not having this. You know, I'm not even blaming Ross. I, I don't think this was like Ross's, you know, it was a totally horrible, unjustifiable decision to go for Mark Stoops. But it, it's, it's just pretty, pretty good clear one. for like the second time in a row that that Ross has never once had actual authority in an athletic you know, department. He's just a figurehead and the, the money people have made a decision twice. And that was sort of what we thought was the case when he took the job. He was there to fundraise and be a – booster regents relations guy and i guess this was the first time it publicly came to light like how little power he actually has in hiring processes as well but and this could be you would know better than me this could just be me not being familiar not being able to remember back that far was that the case with woodward in what sense well i mean woodward hired jimbo fisher which whatever you think of him was seen as an awesome hire at the time he hires bud buzz williams which is seen as an awesome hire at the time do you think he had more or less power, or do you think he was just more in lockstep with what the boosters and board of regents wanted to do? I, I think what Woodward did was just handle the searches with more authority. Whether he actually had all of it is one thing, but he just managed it better. He he would not have had anything leaked before it was signed, sealed, and delivered like Cross has had almost twice now with Doran and now this one. Um, Woodward does everything just – really professionally and kind of in the shadows. And he just knows how to do this. I mean, he brought Chris Peterson to Washington. You know, he was rejected a few times at LSU before they hired Brian Kelly. That was not their first guy. Um, but nobody really cares or knows about that because they ended up with Brian Kelly. <laughs> but Ross is just, just. I mean, I don't even want to say Ross because I, I don't know Ross that well. I've met him like once or twice. Just A&M in general, the way they handled this search in the beginning, it seemed pretty normal. And then, of course, once push comes to shove, you know, all the all the oil money people got in the way and they ended up with a guy that I don't think anyone is that worried about. I don't think so either. I mean, Mike Elko was at least murmured for the Mississippi State job at times. Like you said, they did whatever, I mean, what other regular, I mean, whether they could actually gotten him or not, but that's yeah. generally what people and people within the industry associate a guy like Mike Elko with in A&M seemingly thinking they're a step above it, wanting to go for Dan Lanning and Ryan Day and Dabo Sweeney. And as comical as that may sound to us on the outside, that's how they perceive themselves. And it's just kind of hilarious. They ended up with Elko. Did they end up with the worst or better coach Elko versus Stoops? Cause I think I'll go worse based on sheer lack of experience from Elko. I mean, that's, that's hard to say. Uh, but I mean, Stoops track record of success at a place that is, you know, football is the second tier, which I guess Elko is the same way being at Duke is a non-football school. I mean, worse is, Probably not the way I would say it. Probably just less experienced guy who just happened to be at AM at one point. I, I don't think he's better or worse than Stoops. He's just different, I guess. One of their guys. Is anyone in the SEC West head coach-wise shaking in their boots this evening now that AM has a football coach? Absolutely not. Not even a little bit. I don't think anyone has changed any of their thoughts on AM. Look, they're still gonna have plenty of money. They're still going to recruit at an incredibly high level. I do not think this raises their ceiling to a level of Georgia or Alabama at, at all. And so in that case, or even in LSU, or shit, even in Ole Miss at this point, I mean, they're going to have more talent than them, of course, but it, it just does not change any dynamics on this conference. Shit, not even Texas. That That's the funniest thing about this, is that this was their opportunity to, to tell Texas while they're coming in that, like, hey, like, we're back. We're here for real. And they just didn't do anything to even worry them at all i mean they're about to go to a playoff potentially and AM is about to have a losing season with a head coach that nobody's scared of 
it is fascinating. I didn't even think about the Texas part of that as well. And is it I mean, as funny as these things work? You know, they they got the Jimbo Fisher coup. They gave him all of that money. This is clearly not the same thing. But given what Elko has worked with at Duke and Stoops in a similar light, like you said, at Kentucky, like to me, it would almost seem more logical if they did get over the hump. It's like a guy who worked with no resources that did really well. And now that he has resources, he's going to do well, even though he's not like the coup hire that wins the press conference. I completely agree with you. I do not think this will be a case where like Elko will be terrible. I don't think that he might be exceptionally good. You know, it's actually probably about time that got a guy in who was just simply a football coach who's clearly been able to adapt what he's done. He's a defensive guy who's had pretty good offenses there at at Duke with a one really good quarterback, by the way. That's an important part of this deal. Um, So, no, I'm not saying he's going to fail. I'm just saying that, like, the the mindset around A&M of what they were going for and what they got, to me, is hilarious. And I think it's just going to be more the same with that program. I don't think this raises their ceiling to a level that I think that they want to be at. Never a dull moment in the SEC. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Billy Luisi, however you say the guy's name, who's made a hell of a career at Tex-Ags. I really admire what they've built over there, whatever you might think of the Tex-Ags folks. Called last night the craziest night he's ever had covering Texas A&M. That should probably tell you all you need to know about what unfolded last night and how it unfolded. Uh, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, A&M's a pretty crazy place for this to be the weirdest night they've ever had. Um, I mean, it really was looking like there was a point where if it wasn't going to be Stoops, they might have just hired Robinson, the, the interim coach there. Uh, but it sounds like he's staying on. Like That was kind of a non-negotiable. Um, so it'll be Elko and him as like maybe a defensive coordinator. I don't know. But it, it's crazy what, what happened last night. It doesn't happen that often. And honestly, when it does happen, it kind of never really works out. Yeah, no kidding. What do you figure Petrino does? Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine he's staying. No, no, I don't. I, I didn't figure that. But like, t- I mean, he could probably be a pretty good OC hire for someone next year. I mean, that's definitely possible. I mean, there's teams that are going to need one. Um, Oklahoma is one that's going to be needing one. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he could go back to the head coach deal. Um I don't know where that's open. I mean, Houston's open. I don't know if you can trust him with a program anymore, being the head guy at a power five level. Um, but he'll be out there and around there, but they might just keep him. Um, and that's very, very possible that they just do that. I don't know if that's the case, but it's definitely not out of the cards. Let's shift over to the other opening that got filled this uh, this weekend. Mississippi State has hired former Ole Miss in Oklahoma, the offensive coordinator, Jeff Levy, for this job. This was an interesting search to follow from afar. It was, I talked to Brian Haydad on Wednesday for a little bit of an egg bowl preview, but we really just spent most of the time talking about Mississippi State, the importance of the hire and what went wrong for them this past year. And the candidates that he brought up, and it was just him kind of riffing on a podcast, but it was an it was a very weird blend of very exciting young coordinator or very exciting young head coach, like a John Sumrall proven winners like a John Sumrall or going off the beaten path of like a Rhett Lashley, or I set that up Terry, basically the Rhett Lashley and the Jeff Levies of the world versus like the John Sumrall's, the Mike Elko's, Jamie Chadwell, whether they could get any of those guys I named in the former category, I don't know. And all of a sudden they end up with Jeff Levy being the guy toward the end of the week, the ink dried today. He is officially the next head coach at Mississippi state. What are your thoughts? The search has been really, really interesting. One, just personally, because I've worked directly with John Sumrall and Jeff Levy. So it was fascinating and exciting to see those guys get a chance to, to run their own programs. 
But at the end of the day, they, they brought in Zach Selman, who is, you know, I watched his press conference after they let go of Arnett and, like, didn't come away, like, super, I mean, thinking this guy was anything different than a regular athletic director. He, he seems to be doing a decent job there, but I don't know. But at the end of the day, he, he ended up hiring the one guy that he had a personal relationship with, and that's Jeff Levy because he came from Oklahoma. So they can talk about this, you know, nationwide search, trying to get a sitting head coach. And I, I don't know if anyone, like, rejected them. I mean, Chadwell clearly said he was good. And, and John, you know, I, I haven't talked to him. He's one of the few coaches I actually do keep up with. Um, it didn't seem like he was ever, like, truly a, a real, real candidate there. Um, and they got a guy that is, you know, relatively inexperienced, but has a really impressive track record as an offensive coordinator, but was really just the guy that the athletic director had the best relationship with. Um, it brings Levy back into Mississippi. Um, that will make the Egg Bowl a little bit more interesting than it has been. I'll say uh, there's history there. Yeah. And uh, in the reality of the situation, you know, I, I really like Levy. Uh, I said I've worked with him personally. Um, you know, there's a lot of the Art Bryles Baylor stuff there. They're going to have a PR hit. It's his first head coaching job. He was a big part of that whole ordeal. Um, you know, that's just the reality. That's all very, very real. And is that fair or unfair? Just depends on how you look at it. Um, but that's a real thing. And that, that's something they're going to have to deal with. That's something he's going to have to deal with on the recruiting trail every single place he goes. Um, but he's really good on offense. His staff will be fascinating. Um, I think it's a good hire. I think it's a high-risk hire. But it's potentially a high-reward hire. Um, I think they wanted offense. They got offense. Um, but they've got a lot of work to do on that roster. Um, to really kind of get to the place that he can run what he wants to run. And Will Rogers and Mike Wright and Chris Parson, the other quarterback, are absolutely not the quarterbacks that will be running that offense next year. I can guarantee that. Of course, Rogers is already in the portal. But uh, it, it's fascinating. It, it's interesting. It's not exactly what I would have gone with. Um, and I'm not – it's no shot at Levy. It's just the situation that they're in. It's a, it's a weird one. It's a hard job. Uh, but they got a guy who's – you know, he's got some accolades and he's got, you know, some real recruiting chops. He's really good there. It, it'll be fascinating. I didn't figure they would go this route either. And I'm not sure it's the one I would have gone as well. But hey, at the end of the day, he's had some very exciting offenses. He's a good recruiter. Of course, the same quarterbacks will not be in this program. The odds are like, do you see him bringing any OU guys with him? I didn't necessarily pick up that being the vibe in the short time that the hires happened. Like, I mean, I don't think Dylan Gabriel's coming to Starkville or anything like that, but like carrying over guys. Well, with- I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Really? I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, Dylan, if he has one more year, I think they want to get Jackson Arnold to be the guy up there. I, I wouldn't be super surprised if Dylan was able to, if he has another transfer in him, I don't know if he does or not, whether it's grad or whatnot. I wouldn't be super shocked to see him. Um, coaching staff wise will be really interesting there. Um, my First guess is that he'll bring Joe John with him to be the offensive coordinator, former tight ends coach at Ole Miss. I think he's the co-offensive coordinator technically over there at Oklahoma. My guess is that he'd probably rehire Randy Clements if he has the opportunity to. Uh, I guess he's at North Carolina right now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he brought him back. Uh, I know J.D. Baker at Ole Miss's staff will be another guy he'll look at for a potential offensive coordinator. Coordinator uh, defensively, I've got no idea what he would do. 
Um, I mean, look, DJ Durkin's out of a job. Maybe he brings him to state. They've obviously worked together before. That would be a double PR nightmare uh, for them, which is funny because, of course, they run all this staff at one time together. So it's, you know, don't throw stones and glass glass houses. But it's going to be a lot of Texas. I I think they're going to hit Texas hard. That's Levy's stomping ground. That'll be Joe John's stomping ground. It'll be something new for Mississippi State. They've not gone in that state very often, um, and they're going to go there very, very often. They'll be in Florida more than they've ever been. Um, and, of course, they'll recruit the state really hard. Uh, obviously, they will. Um, so th- there's a lot of positives. There's a lot of question marks. I don't think it's a bad hire by any means. It's just not – if I was them, I would have given John Summerall so much money that he would have forgotten about Kentucky and said, I'll be there. Uh, that's what I would have done. And it's one thing, the one thing happened is that he was waiting for Kentucky or they didn't want to hire him in case he left them for Kentucky, or he just simply was not ready to go to Mississippi state. One of those three things would have happened, but I would have made him an offer that he could not have refused. Um, I'm not that scared of, of Jeff Levy recruiting in state against Kiffin. I would have been really nervous if John Sumrall was at Mississippi State recruiting in-state and around against against Ole Miss. There is a Mississippi State 247 report out there today about one of the selling points of Levy saying he didn't feel like this was a rebuild and he could win a lot next year. Of course, every coach in America has probably said that in an interview at one point or another. I don't buy that at all, do you? Because this, to me, looks like a year to rebuild before you can really kind of flip this. And I get the portal expedites everything, but, man, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. It's a hard job, but it's not its not a bad job. I think there's a difference between hard job and bad job. UCLA is a hard ass, and in my opinion, a bad job. Mississippi State is in the SEC. You make a ton of money. They have a really good you know, fan base. It's not big. Their recruiting is not the easiest in the world. They don't have the most money in the world, but it's an SEC program that can pay really good money that has the ability to have shown that can win games. It's not a bad job. It's just a really, really hard one. Um, And they have a lot of work in front of them. I think this is an interesting way to go about it. I think they're going to be portaling like crazy. Like you'll never see. I mean, they are going to be purging that roster and bringing in guys to run that system because it is a system. That offense is a system, and people call it a gimmick system. It's it's hypo-esque. It's basically very, very similar to what Tennessee does. Uh, it's very, very similar, obviously, to what Baylor used to run back in the day with Petty and those guys. It, it's, it's very much a system. What he's going to bring in is a quarterback with a big arm, with some mobility, and he's going to get receivers who run, and that's all that matters. The, he is going to get four receivers who can run like crazy. And it's going to take time to get that, but that that's going to be his goal there. Um, and they, they run the ball a lot defensively. Like I said, I have no idea, but I'm not worried. I'm the Ole Miss will be a better football team than them for probably a while. Um, because I just don't think they've just got so much work to do there. Let's take a real quick look around the SEC because there are some interesting games as far as just long-term storylines and the actual games themselves, Missouri, Goes on the road, destroys Arkansas 48-14. Unfortunately, K.J. Jefferson gets hurt very early in this game. I hated to see yeah, that. That sucked. Even that with sucked. him, that aside, I mean, Neil, I think, put this out on social media. It was like, do you do you acknowledge that bringing Pittman back is a mistake? It just acts it there. doesn't sound like that's going to happen. What do you make of the decision to bring Pam 
Sam Pittman back after this last 2022 chapter, excuse me, 2023 chapter that we saw of his product. I said it last week. I think it's a mistake to bring him back. I think it's a bigger mistake to announce that that was the case, to put yourself in a corner. And then after what happened on Friday, I mean, ain't no contract saying you have to bring it back. Um, it sounds like that's what they're going to do. And they're going to funnel a ton of NIL money and see if that changes the thing. Um, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster, just throwing a bunch of money at a bunch of kids when you have like really no culture and no identity at this point. Uh, I, I would rid myself of that situation and try to just restart new and give the new guy NIL money. Because what's the point of giving Pittman a bunch of NIL money if it, next year, you know, he's they're terrible again, you fire him. It's like, well, why do we just waste a year if that's the case? Because there's no momentum there. Um, so I, I don't agree with that at all. I, I think they should cut cut their losses, figure it out. They'd be an attractive place to go, especially if they really do have a lot of this money. Um, that, that's a mistake, in my opinion. Florida State, Florida. I mean, your comment from a week ago <laughs> last week sticks out that Florida's just a losing team that makes a bunch of losing plays. They had this game won for a while. It felt like uh, Rodemaker for Florida State settles in a little bit with some help from Florida. And I looked up at the end of this and was like, man, I don't know how Florida State won this game by a, more than a touchdown. Operationally and situationally, Florida is god-awful. And they've shown it every single week this season. This is a backup on backup. They have all the momentum. They get a freaking safety and then just over and over and over again. It's just losing plays after losing plays after losing plays. Um, they are just such a masterclass on how to lose football games. That's not a place you want to be in your second year there, but it doesn't seem like they're making a change. I don't even think they necessarily should. They've got a really good class coming in. They've got to figure it out. They got to make some staff changes. They're just going to have to operationally really look in the mirror and figure out how the hell they can be not this bad. I mean, it's all three phases. They just F up so often that it's shocking that they even won four games or what they won five and seven. So it, uh, they hit my under for the season. Um, it, the last night was just like the, you know, the perfect encapsulation of their season, the way that they played the last half of that game. It was just pathetic. It really was. And, you know, as Ole Miss people probably rooting for Florida to try to help Ole Miss's New Year's six chances. And it was just, imagine if you're watching it from that standpoint, it was a pretty frustrating one. Bearing the lead here, the Iron Bowl. Holy jeepers. <laughs> I went from, like, Alabama's playing with its food to Auburn's got something here with the run game stuff. Freeze has got some routes going for Peyton Thorne that are clearly working against this Alabama defense to Auburn's absolutely going to win this game to wow. This will be close back to Auburn's absolutely winning this game to what the hell did they do on that fourth down? I, that was one of the craziest football games ever. And if you're an Auburn fan, that's got to rank one a as far as crushing defeats. Cause I don't really even know without knowing their history, how you would walk out of the stadium with the worst feeling that what just happened on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. I told you last week, I told you last week they were going to cover this game. I, you just knew it was coming. I know New Mexico state, I, they were going to be ready for this one. Um, I didn't think it was going to be like that, though. <laughs> I, I did not think it was going to end up like that. We were um, we were at dinner Saturday night in Baton Rouge, and they had the game on. The restaurant is playing Dixieland Delight as they're about to start losing. And finally, on that last play, my buddy had like a ton of money on Alabama Moneyline live. And 
we both are literally standing up and screaming in the restaurant. We were the only people standing. Everyone is staring at us. It was so embarrassing. I didn't really care. I, I mean, I, I'd rather Alabama win than Auburn. So I was excited for him. It's but the shock it was, value. I stood up in my living room and yelled. I didn't have a dog. No, right? Exactly. Everyone else was like depressed and like, you know, everyone else was like, what the hell? And they're like, why are y'all cheering for Alabama? And like, not really cheering for Alabama. We're cheering to win this bet. Um, that was insane. And I mean, that's got to be the worst loss Auburn has ever had. And it's not like it really changed that much. Um, but Jesus Christ. I mean, how do you not – rushing two guys and having a spy who doesn't blitz and letting a guy that, if he has time, is really accurate, just sit there and wait for a guy to come open and throw a pass. It just is a malpractice. Um, it's still allowing a one-on-one. You blitz two and they still get a one-on-one in the end zone. Not even mentioning the fact that they had their backup kick returner or punt returner out there who muffs a punt, puts him puts in that position. Yeah. Um, just a total disaster from Auburn. And I think it is hilarious. So I don't really care. <laughs> it's just, it was uh, just a great game. It was game. a tremendous football game. And man, if you're free, I mean, talk about, we talked about how, he, how do you come back from New Mexico State? That, that would have been how you do it. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah. it went from that to just absolute soul-crushing defeat. That That's a tough one. And that's kind of the Hugh Freeze experience, is it not? You're going to get some duds in there. You're going to get some inexplicable decisions at the end of games. But you're also going to have some pretty high highs. That This felt like, not even win total-wise, but this the, the Hugh Freeze experience in year one in a nutshell for Auburn. It, it's just you can say that they have momentum and that they're doing the right things and they're recruiting well, but I just don't think that Hugh freeze has the, let's call it the facilities to get himself to a level of Alabama or Georgia, which was the only thing that they'll care about. And it's the only thing they measure themselves to, whether that's right or wrong. I I just don't think he's got it. I don't think he's that guy, Um, you know, going off of that mean he, he's just simply not that guy. So yeah, there's progress, but like it always seems like it's two step forwards, like 95 steps backwards with him, uh, with really anything he's in. So, I mean, this they got to figure out the quarterback, they got to figure out skill positions. I mean, that roster is not even close to where it needs to be to actually compete in the SEC, especially with those other two teams coming in. Um, they, they're just so far off, and I just don't believe in him to be able to to clear that gap. So you're not you're kind of out on freeze. Absolutely. Are you Which, out I mean, on Sunbelt? Shocking is that is that a shocking thing to say? No, I don't think so. I never knew what to think of it. The year one, of course, didn't go great, but I didn't know fully what to think of it. And so no, not not totally shocking at all. Um, particularly with the impatience of that dysfunctional booster network. That was always going to be a weird dynamic, even if he kind of cowtoed to them in the beginning. Which is fine, but at the end of the day, I mean what they are six and six this year. Is that what they are? Yeah, I can't remember. They'll be at the Birmingham Bowl or somewhere. Sure, that's fine. Uh, if they are not, you know, 10 and 2 next year, they're going to be pissed. I mean, that's just the reality of that job. And I just don't think he is getting them to 10 and 2 next year. They'll maybe win eight games if he can really portal that roster and figure out a quarterback deal. Um, but I just don't, I don't trust him to be able to do it in this world. I'm, I'm not in on that at all. Last SEC game that really had any sort of, I thought, any any interesting point to talk about after. What's LSU going to do defensively? Because they win that game solely because Jaden Daniels is amazing. It ends up being 42-30 to end it, but they couldn't stop A&M. 
uh, kind of a hapless offense for a lot of the year. What do they have to do this offseason to fix that? Just get another guy in as far as defensive coordinator that's competent? It's really interesting because what Matt House did last year was really impressive. They they portaled a ton of that team. If you remember, uh, they, they played Kansas State and the Texas Bowl with like 30 players on scholarship. The next year they come out and they were very competent on defense. Uh, borderline good. Like they were, they were actually good. Um, their biggest issue on defense is that they have zero dudes at DB and they have absolutely no guy that sets a tempo at linebacker. Um, Perkins is basically playing like a nickel safety linebacker. He's still as dynamic as ever, but he's just kind of has been negated to what he is at this point. Cause he, he just simply doesn't seem like he's going to be a guy who's capable of playing at the inside backer, making the calls on defense. It's just not him. Um, fair or unfair. That's just what this season has shown us is that they're not comfortable doing it. Um, I, I think simply that house, despite what he did last year, what this season has been, you can't in good faith, bring him back. It, you can't have one of the worst defenses in LSU history and just bring the coordinator back. Uh, but I'm not hundred percent sure they're going to fire him. I feel like we would have uh, heard that already. That feels like an immediately after the game, after the season type move. And the fact that there's no buzz is weird. And you mean there's no buzz. There's zero buzz about it. And maybe this is something that happens tomorrow, you know, kind of a Black Monday deal. It's very, very possible. Um, but I, I don't necessarily know if he, if Kelly's going to do it. He, I think Kelly really likes this guy. I think he trusts this guy. I'm not even sure Matt House is terrible at his job, but at the end of the day, it's a results business, and that defense this year was absolutely terrible. So you, you probably have to make a change when you're paying coordinators the amount of money that schools in the SEC do. You, you can't accept the results of that season. So – there was all this BS about Dave Aranda, but it sounds like he's staying at Baylor. They're going to keep him for another season, so he will not be returning to Baton Rouge. They're just going to have to go find somebody. I don't know who it's going to be. I couldn't even tell you. It's not something I've looked into, but they're going to have to change that. And that team's going to be in a massive transition next year, You know, losing Brian Thomas, losing the elite neighbors, losing a lot of veterans on a defense that wasn't very good. Um, you know, you're probably rolling with Nussmeyer, I guess. Um, you're going to have a really good offensive line, so that's a good place to start. But there's going to be a lot of mixing and matching and trying to repair this team by losing a lot of really, really good players. Last thing, because we'll table soccer corner for next week once we do, like, the old Mrs. Bowl destination all that. What would you make of Ohio State, Michigan, and who do you think is getting in the playoff? Uh, really fun game. Uh, I didn't get to watch a whole lot of it because I was in Baton Rouge. I was at the AM LSU game. Um, but I mean, Michigan is undefeated, having their head coach miss six of the 12 games. That is remarkable. that is nuts. Just, it's like bookended. They've played two teams of the pulse. That that's that's a fact. So it's not like this is like the craziest thing to ever happen in college football history. They, their schedule has been dog shit. But you know, they did it. And they really were – this game was kind of different from the last two games. The last two Michigan wins was like kind of like a, just a physical manhandling. This one was not that. It looked like it was going to be that at one point, but the kind of Ohio State made a few plays, got back into it. Um, I, I thought Ryan Day was completely outcoached by Moore. Uh, I think Ryan Day is completely – he is the most third base you'll ever find in the history of college football where he thought – you know, he was born there. You know, the, the funny joke they always say where Jim Harbaugh 
this is like, you know, this guy, you know, he just ended up on third base. He wasn't, you know, he has not earned it. And there's actually a really interesting graph that I'm going to try to find. I'm so bad. I need to freaking save this shit. So one guy on college football Twitter made a third base graph, which is basically where every coach has been based on when they were hired and what they, you know, inherited from the last staff. So basically they call it a third base uh, kind of graph or kind of metric. And Ryan Day over the last 15 years was far and away set up in the best situation and has done Oh, he's not been bad, but like let's say he's like fifty six and six, good. and people want him fired. Yes, the but problem there's is, nuance is to it. Not, it's not totally absurd that why Ohio State people are unhappy by any stretch. It's not. Uh, it, it seems crazy. There's he has like one of the highest win percentages in the history of college football for the amount of games that he's played. And if he finished his career on this trajectory, he would be the winningest college football coach in history based off a of win percentage. But there. They don't give a shit about that. It's about winning national championships, about winning Big Ten championships, about beating Michigan. For the last three years, he has not done that. Um, I wouldn't hire him. I mean, wouldn't fire him. I think it's a little ridiculous. But I I do understand the frustration with that fan base. When you're in the Big Ten, you had two big games this year. They did not exactly look dominant against Penn State. And then they ended up really – I mean, they had a chance to win this game, but it never really felt like it. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do there. I think they're just probably going to run it back. I don't think they're making the playoff. I think your playoff will be, I think Georgia will beat Alabama. Let's just say they will for this case scenario. I think Georgia will beat Alabama. Michigan will obviously beat Iowa. The winner of Washington and Oregon should go. And in my opinion, Florida State, if they go undefeated, should go. I don't think that's going to happen, though. Um, you think, think they get ousted? You think we have this final chapter of lunacy? I, I think if Georgia wins, Michigan wins, let's call it Oregon for, you know, for whatever, because I think they're going to beat Washington. Uh, if Texas wins, I think it'll be Texas. And if Florida State wins, I, I just don't think they're going to put them in. I think they're going to use their bullshit eye test teams that are playing the best you know we want the four best teams well that's never really true they're gonna do whatever they want to do what they don't want to do is have florida state with a backup quarterback playing georgia and new orleans in a semifinal game they don't want that they're just not going to do it they're gonna do whatever they want to do and i think it'll end up being one of the biggest dumbest stupidest whatever i mean i can't even think of enough words because i'm not very good at this uh, it'll be the most ridiculous decision in the history of college football that a team is going to go undefeated. And we have 14 playoff now. This is not two, there's four. They're going to be undefeated power five conference champion. And the only reason they're not in is because their quarterback broke their ankle at the end of the season instead of the beginning of the season. It's going to be so, so, so stupid, but it's going to happen. Um, and it may benefit Ole Miss that being the case and that's fine. Um, but it's going to be really, 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 really stupid. It's like, why we even play the games? Why did we play 12 games if you're Florida State, if you're going to go undefeated and not get in because your quarterback got hurt? If it does happen, it's the perfect cherry on top to this stupid 14 playoff era, is it not? That is the perfect it's Exactly, yeah. It's from the beginning, the way we started this with the TCU-Baylor-Ohio State thing and ending it with a undefeated team 
power five champion not getting in will be the perfect encapsulation of how stupid this sport has been with this 14 playoffs. Everything I talked about last week, because when it happens, it's going to be outrage. And it may not even be unfair to say that they're not one of the four best teams, but it'll be unfair based off of everything else we know about this sport and just sports in general. And it'll be really shitty for them and then it'll suck for them. And I'll be frustrated online and triggered and it won't really, I'll wake up the next day. It'll be fine. But if I was a Florida state fan, I I would be so fucking pissed off if I don't get into this 14 playoff after the season that we've had, it would be just a complete joke. It's going to be interesting to watch it unfold over the next week or so. We'll have a reaction on Sunday. He is Walden Rodenberg. I appreciate the time as always, my man. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. See you, man. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. Really appreciate you listening to this podcast as always. We'll have some more football talk throughout the week as well as to dive into some hoops, maybe get Bracken back on. But uh, tons of good stuff coming your way. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always. We'll talk to you here soon. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.